Well, good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. May God bless the reading of God's Word. For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. The Word of God for the people of God. For those of you who have ridden the New York City subway, you know that it is a magical place. (laughs) It is. You know it's the most efficient way for anybody and everybody to get around the city. And because of that, it's the only place that I know of where on a regular basis, people from countries around the world, the millionaires and the minimum wage earners, the librarians, the lovers, and the lawyers, Mets fans and Yankees fans are all bound together with the same fate, equally and together, in the hands of the Metropolitan Transit Authority. No one having more power or influence than anybody else. The New York City subway system is the great equalizer. I'm going to tell you a story this morning about an experience that my son, Sam, and I had on the subway. Many of you know Sam. One Saturday afternoon in June, several years ago, Sam was seven years old. And by that time in, in his life, as many young people, uh, as happens to many young people around that age, you start to develop your sports allegiances. And at that point in his life, he had become a serious Yankees fan. <laughs> Sorry, Laura. You tried to get it out of him. <laughs> now that day, we, we saw the Yankees play their crosstown rival, the Mets, at what was then known as Shea Stadium which was before they built City Field. And the Yankees were having a good year that year. But the Mets actually won that day. Now you can imagine how fired up the Mets fans were to win that game in their home stadium against the Yankees and how upset the Yankees fans were. And after that game, Sam and I got on the number seven train to take the subway back to Grand Central so we could get home to Connecticut. There were probably 100, maybe 125 other fans packed onto that subway car. A lot of them were probably drunk. Many were ecstatic. Others were furious. Many were probably both emotional and drunk, which is not a good combination on a packed subway car after a New York City sporting event. Some of you have probably been on the subway after a New York City sporting event, and it can be rowdy like really rowdy, especially if you've got two rivals playing, Yankees, Red Sox, Yankees, Mets. Now, Sam and I were wedged in this car, body to body. You know that experience where you just pressed against everybody else? His, his little seven-year-old hand was gripped to my pant leg, 
while I held on to that steel pole in the middle of the train. <laughs> you know what that's like? I don't even think anybody knew he was on the train. He was, he was about that high. And very puffed up by their win, the Mets fans started loudly trash-talking the Yankees. While a good portion of, of the Mets fans joined in, I won't repeat what they were saying, but I'm sure it's going through your head, that mantra. No self-respecting Yankees fan would take that lying down. So the Yankees fans started yelling back. And it got loud. It got really loud. And it was reaching a boiling point in that subway car where I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen. It was actually getting quite hostile. I mean, can you imagine how uncomfortable that was for the father of a seven-year-old boy? I looked down at Sam at one point, and I saw that he was quietly crying. He was scared, understandably so. No one else on that train could see him other than me. But as I bent over to try to console him, to comfort him, one Mets fan noticed us. And then that guy yelled out at the top of his voice, hey, hey, there's a kid on board, he's a Yankees fan, cool it. I couldn't believe it. This was New York City, the, people where people hardly, the place where people hardly look at each other. And at that moment, everyone softened. The car quieted. They stopped yelling at each other, and they started joking that the Yankees fans weren't so bad. And as Sam and I arrived at, at Grand Central, we sort of got off the train laughing. That is an absolutely true story. I did not embellish that one bit. And it's utterly unbelievable. In New York City, on that day, at that time, while everyone was absorbed in the hostility of an us versus them and the potential violence of a post-game smackdown, one guy looked down. One guy. And then he became the light that exposed something that no one else saw or no one else chose to see. A scared child. He noticed, he engaged, and then he let his light shine. He became what the Apostle Paul would call in Ephesians a child of light. As he shined on what no one else saw, he became bigger than his own individual existence. And as a child of light, he was the catalyst that illuminated the darkness in that subway car full of hostile New Yorkers. And then they did something good. In the same way that each of us is equal in the eyes of the MTA, we are equal in our ability to let our light shine too. That guy didn't do anything that we, each of us, isn't capable of doing as well. It's just that he chose to notice and engage and let his light shine. Light is a common theme throughout the Bible. It's in the very first chapter of Genesis where God created light and says light was good. As Paul says in Ephesians, 
Each of us can be that light that exposes goodness. Each of us equally has God in us. In the same way that the millionaire and the minimum wage earner have equal status on the subway, each of us has equal ability to be the light that illuminates what is good and right and true. Each of us can be so much more than our individual selves. Most of us actually tend to walk through life thinking that we are less powerful than we actually are. Each one of us, I don't care what you've done in your life or what you haven't done, each of us, in fact, has more power than you can possibly imagine. That Mets fan on that day showed me that. If I achieve nothing else with this sermon today, I want you to leave here knowing that God is within each of you already, equally, infinitely, from the minute you were born. And nothing you do over the course of your life will change that. Know that you have the power of God in you, each of you, and choose to use it. Paul is telling us that Jesus changed us. We were once living as a void, but now, as Paul says, we are light. If you believe nothing else about Jesus Christ, believe this. Jesus revealed to us the expansive power in each of us. Jesus revealed the way we are capable of being in our time on earth, in relation to others. Jesus illuminated human existence to reveal that we are so much more than we can possibly imagine. And that's at the crux of what Paul is saying here. God's light in us is what enables us to live more expansively. It doesn't matter who you are or what you do. Let's take my professional identity as a lawyer as an example. In my profession, it's a badge of honor to be described as tough as nails or working 18 hours a day walking through walls for clients. We sometimes talk about how someone eviscerated an opponent. You know what that word means? It means to disembowel. <laughs> it's violent. It's ugly. And yet some lawyers take pride in being that way. Not all, but some. With those sort of descriptors as the gold standard that we should aspire to, it's no wonder that my profession wrings the humanity out of so many in it. That is not a good thing. Let me repeat, that is not a good thing. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be or you can't be a lawyer and live as light at the same time. Not at all. The legal profession is, in my view, a noble one. It's one that gives its professionals the ability to do great things, to change lives, expose injustice, and illuminate what's good and right and true. 
But as a lawyer, you can be so much more than you can possibly imagine. So much more than they tell you you should be. So much more than they teach you in law school. For example, we could, as lawyers, value being creative or reaching a mutually beneficial solution between a client and an adversary rather than judging ourselves based on the number of wins and losses we have in those columns. We could talk about lawyers helping clients see the other side of an argument rather than judging ourselves based on whether we've gotten the client what they supposedly wanted. I mean, could you imagine how much more my profession might be if we injected a bit more of that humanity back into it? More than we can imagine. We don't have to compartmentalize our faith and our occupations the way we do. We can be the light every day in our occupations. I'm not suggesting that we go evangelize at the office or in the workplace, wherever you work. I'm just suggesting that each of us can illuminate a way of life based not in what society tells us is the way it's supposed to be, but in the way that Jesus demonstrated life can be. I'm also not suggesting you show up in a robe and sandals. Now, this is true of any occupation. If you're a plumber, you can be that light. As a problem solver, who uses the God-given gift of empathy when you relieve another person's distress by fixing their water leak. If you're an interior designer, you can use that light by using the God-given gift of aesthetics to bring joy and beauty into the lives of others. What a magnificent gift. Albert Hadley's light is still shining after decades after bringing rooms with a view to this church. If you're an Uber driver, you can be that light. As a person who uses the God-given gift of community to deliver someone to a friend in need or get someone home safely. Even if you're a banker, you can be that light. By using the God-given gift of creativity, when you finance organizations that are coming up with solutions for disease or protecting the earth, it matters how you view your occupation, but it doesn't matter what your occupation is. My point is that you are so much more than your self-imposed occupational identity. Frankly, you're more than any self-imposed identity. You have that potential already in you. You're walking around every day with God-bestowed light in you. And you can use it to expose what is good and right and true in our world and in your relations with others. Now remember, Paul does not tell us to seek the light. You hear people saying sometimes, I've seen the light. Paul doesn't tell us to seek the light. Paul tells us to be the light. That's important. We're the ones responsible. We're the ones with the agency, like that guy on the subway car with me and Sam. 
When we're seeking the light, we aren't being the light. We're just aimlessly looking at what's already been exposed. We're not taking up the mantle ourselves. Reminds me of the story, some of you may have heard this about the cop who sees a man searching for something under a streetlight and he asks the guy what he lost and the guy says he lost his keys and so they both start looking under the streetlight together. And after a few minutes of not finding them, the cop asks the guy if he's sure he lost them there. And the guy says, no, I lost them in the park. And he says, why are we looking here? And he says, well, this is where the light is. When we seek the light, we're just looking at what's already exposed. There's no value in that. We're not contributing. The key is to figure out where you can be light. Where you can act in a way that exposes goodness. Where it otherwise wouldn't exist. Who or what can you draw closer to? so that you can illuminate goodness in others in the world. How can you notice, engage, and shine? Paul tells us to be children of light. In Matthew, Jesus tells us we've got to become more like children to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about what happens to us after we die. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven now. On earth, children have a way of noticing and speaking the truth in a way that adults don't. They have a way of acting on instinct with deep vulnerability and honesty, sincerity and empathy. And over the course of our adult lives, we can build up an exterior that helps us navigate the world to protect ourselves, to protect our families, to get ahead, to accumulate stuff. But we lose something in that process. What we lose are some valuable things that we need to let through in our adult lives. A little bit of vulnerability and intuition, just to name a couple. Those are good things, not things we should be crushing don't let adulthood wring them out of you. We need to shed some of that armadillo exterior that we put on that helps us navigate the world, the material world, so that we remind ourselves and everyone around us what we have been given as children already from the minute we were born. It's what is in each of us equally as part of God's creation. 16 years later, Sam and I still remember that guy on the train. His light is still shining. Be that light. Praise be to God.